at SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. All right, so my guests are with us, um, and uh, this is the perspective that we're having, Sharon. Uh, Ekam Braham, who is the head of refugee and, uh, and migra- migrants rights program at the Lawyer for Human Rights, as well as an asylum seeker that we're going to speak to in a short while. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. It's an interesting study, Sharon. So what was the basis of the study? What were you looking to find? Well, it, it, uh, uh, that's a good question and where to start. I think that the report. Firstly, the collaboration with, with uh, as you said, Corruption Watch, but also Scalabrini, which uh, functions out of the Western Cape. Mm. And basically, the report was aimed to assess what changes there has been in the asylum process with uh, specific reference to corruption. Um, and, and, I mean, I think, you know, Lawyers for Human Rights uh, did an extensive um, research project together with uh, the African Center for Migration and Society at the Witts uh, University in, in, in 2015. And following on that, there's also been, as you, you know, in part of this collaboration, Corruption Watch has done a report, Asylum at a Price. And so, you know, we wanted to look at whether there has been any changes uh, over the, the, the period, you know, the last five years. And, and that was the... the, the process of the surveys and the questionnaires to look at and, and assess that. And and the results were, what kind of change have we seen? Well, there has been some changes. Um, you know, I think we've, we've, we, we must acknowledge that. Mm. Um, and, and I think that, for example, the, the Messina RRO, um, there was very few, uh, if any, reported incidents of of a corruption at the at the point of accessing the refugee reception office, mm-hmm. but another significant uh, aspect of this this uh, survey was to also look at what's happening around refugee reception offices as well, mm. and it, and and it came out of repeated complaints and 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 uh, reports from our clients. So lawyers for human rights. Uh, runs uh, walk-in law clinics in, in different parts of the country. And, you know, before COVID and for over a number of years, we were servicing over 10,000 clients in a year. And and many, many of these clients spoke about the extent to which the entire process is, is um, infected. It's a disease infected by corrupt practices. Sharon, I'm intrigued by what you were saying because we were having a conversation with our colleagues around how are we going to expand the term corruption and where we stop looking. In other words, how far is, you know, how far is the study? How wide is it? So you are saying that the reception offices, for instance, there was a, a major drop in corruption uh, at the Messina ROO. And I'm, I'm intrigued because I was just thinking, you know, we have corruption, for instance, that 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 begins with the kind of border fence that we have. We have corruption that um, is sometimes at the actual border gate itself where there are officials. We have corruption where um, maybe an official stops you and then you don't have the paperwork and then you, you bribe that official. We have corruption where we would 
employ either a domestic worker or a gardener or somebody in a restaurant kitchen where we are complicit and in fact are part of that corruption. We have corruption. It's just multiple. And when you're saying that there was less corruption, for instance, at Messina, at the frontline desk, but there was more around that, that's intriguing to me. Well, and that was consistent with all the, the, the remaining refugee reception offices that are functional. Mm. And I, and I, so I think that, you know, while there is, uh, we've noted some change, but on the whole, unfortunately, um, it, it has remained the same, if not uh, has got worse. Does that mean that there has been some significant work that Home Affairs has done to decrease that corruption? Or are we just moving the, the personnel outside the office? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a very good question, and, and I, I want to speak to some of the causes and what creates the opportunities for this corruption, and I think that will answer your question. Mm. But, you know, it's a simple thing of no cues in, in, in uh, Messina. Mm. So the minute someone comes in to uh, um, make their claim to be recognized as refugees, mm. uh, they, they have an immediate appointment, yeah. and, and then they, they, they make their claim. But unfortunately, and this is where the unfortunate is, is that they've had a 100% rejection rate over the last few years. So every application has been rejected. And that's the problem, is that there's a serious, serious concern with the quality of decision-making. So someone has fled from Tanzania because of fear of persecution, because of their sexual orientation. Now, you would expect the refugee reception immigration officer who's uh, taking this claim to know that, yes, that country of origin of um, evidence and and a report uh, of what the situation is with respect to anyone who is, um, you know, uh, expresses that they are uh, gay or they uh, their sexual orientation. And, and and to have an immediate rejection means that there's something uh, seriously problematic with this process. And, and if I can just finish that point, mm. what happens then is our system, uh, the Refugee Act, sets out a very clear process for people to uh, appeal such mm. decisions. And again, based on our experience over a, over a 10-year period, actually, that no one will make and use that appeal process unless they have a, a really they're confident of the merits of their claim, mm. that they are refugees and they just need the system to recognize them. And then they get stuck in the system. And it can be anything from 5 to 10 to 15 years that people are waiting in the system. So even though there may be no immediate corruption, mm-hmm. the minute you reject this person in Messina, he gets in, or she gets into the system, stays in the system, having to return to a refugee reception office anything from three months to six months to get their papers, their asylum paper. Now, that asylum paper says, yes, we recognize that you came in to say that you are seeking refuge, Mm. but your first claim has been rejected. And so you're then appealing that process. And you're sitting in the system for 15, 16 years, and that's the vulnerability that creates this opportunity for corruption um, so, and the, the crisis of the system. Help me out, Sharon, because I need to understand if it's in a chicken and an egg situation. Is it an automated system or is there a deliberate attempt to reject it because the actual person sitting behind the desk would love to solicit a bribe? 
No, I mean, I think that's, um, you know, a big, a cynical part of me would want to agree with you. I, I, I think that the asylum system requires a major overhaul. And these are some of the things that lawyers for human rights and other partners have been saying is that we want to be involved with training of uh, you know, immigration officials mm. about uh, this process of the quality of decision making, mm. uh, about people who have claims. Uh, related to sexual orientation or what is the situation in countries like the DRC and mm. Somalia. And, and we, we, we were getting a, a shut door. So I think that that is something that the newly, well, he's not new anymore, but Minister Aaron Matsuledi should hear our appeal for assessing why the quality of decision-making is so bad and why this has been the mantra for many, many years. There are a pile of reports about this very well-researched documents demonstrating that this is a serious problem. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think it is because South Africa wants to keep the the number of recognized refugees, there's some form of quota. Mm -hmm. So we have about 90,000 refugees, recognized refugees in our country. And in this backlog that I spoke about... Did you say 95? 90,000. 90,000, okay. Yeah. And we have about 180,000 people who are asylum seekers waiting for their claims, uh, their their appeals to be heard and for their status to be uh, rejected or recognized. And and, and they have to provide a proper reason for why you are rejecting someone's claim from Somalia or someone who's, uh, who's gay and has been persecuted in Tanzania and has come to South Africa for protection. And, and this is the, the, the crisis. Um, so, and then that then creates the opportunity for the kind of corruption and corrupt practices that mm-hmm. we have uh, have uh, reported on in, in, in this report. Seeing that the world is as vast as it is and it's a moving target, reasons why people flee their countries change every single day. Does the department have the capacity to then, you know, bring up the quality of those people assessing those asylum seekers? Well, you know, just, I mean, I think the, yes and no that it's a shifting target mm. because what we're facing with, and this may be the problem, is that it's a very different situation from the situation of the World War II and refugees that came out of that mm. context. Mm-hmm. We're having prolonged conflict on the continent, mm. whether it's the DRC, whether it's Somalia. Somalia has been in a crisis state for I don't know how many years now, over a decade. And, and so people who come, there, that uh, risk to their lives remains for over 10 years. And, and we have to find ways to ensure that people do remain in our country because they can't go back home. Uh, and that's we, when we signed on to the uh, UN Declaration, we, we, that's what we said. We will be willing to, to um, be able to provide for people that are fleeing because they have no choice. Uh, otherwise, their lives are at risk. And, and you know, I think that that's, that's the, the, the problem here. Is And uh, sorry, to answer your question then, the UNHCR makes its resources available. Mm. We have indicated that we, we as uh, civil society, I think the South African Human Rights Commission as a Chapter 9 institution has the capacity to be able to assist in training, in regular updates, if it's required, free of charge. We raise money to do this kind of work and we want to make ourselves available because this is what strengthens our democracy. It's not that we are a charity. It's not that we want to do this out of the goodness of our heart, which we would anyway.
but but you know, and I, I think that we just getting a shut door from particularly the Department of Home Affairs. So, you know, you spoke about um, a quota of sorts. Um, do we know what that quota is? Well, I can say to you that uh, for the last six, no, maybe 10 years, um, approximately 6% of all applications for refugee uh, recognition status in our country was, was granted. Of all applications, less than 6% were granted refugee status. I mean, I, I understand that I think we've got technical issues. Do you think that there are political reasons, though, um, why we are reluctant to receive more asylum seekers? Look, I think, you know, your opening comments um, made me feel a bit tired because I think it's not just the issue of refugees and asylum seekers. And I think that when we approach it in that way, you can see even in South Africa, mm the refugees are saying, oh, it's all these foreigners, it's mm. all these economic migrants that are making it impossible for us to enjoy mm. our status as refugees in this country. Mm. That's the first point. Mm. The second point is that our policy for our Refugee Act uh, is based on the the, uh, the premise of, of urban integration. Mm. So we don't put people in camps. And you know, there's, if, you, if you have to read up on camps in Uganda, in uh, Kenya, it's a huge cost to keep people in camps. It's yeah. inhumane as well. And so this system is probably the cheapest on our fiscus, if you like. People must fend for themselves when they get to this country. And they must be able to eke out an existence, whether that's through the informal uh, sector or whatever means to be able to survive on their own with once they granted refugee status. And and of course the refugee status does grant them the right to be able to access basic health care and basic education. So it's not a huge cost, but I think that's the point I'm getting to, and this is far more complex, mm. is I feel that we need to have a, a a broader and informed conversation about movement in the 21st century. And what does that mean in the context of climate crisis, in the context of continued, uh, you know, a long-term conflict? And at the end of the day, what must inform that conversation is respect for advancing common humanity. We have to, we can't forget the human beings that we're talking about when we talk about refugees, asylum seekers, and even the so-called economic migrants. But, but that that's interesting that you say that because part of your report was exactly speaking to the corruption. And, and part of the problem, I feel, is that there is that responsibility. Um, and you are absolutely right around the fact that people need to have a different type of a conversation. But I think South Africans are at a point where they feel the responsibility of them um, having to deal with the nuance of migration is left to them. And you have a very uh, a government that doesn't police, a government that's not managing how the refugee status of, you know, is, is, is managed. As you said, there was almost a 100% rejection rate uh, over a period. So then you have people who, of course, are going to arrive, but then we're not, we don't have, the, you know, they don't have the paperwork, they're rejected. So there are all these uncertainties around them being here because we're not managing the processes properly. So a part of it has to go back to, to government. 
so that they can manage the process properly and police for those who do not have any business for being here as criminals. Sorry, say that again, as criminals, you mean those, as undocumented people. Those who are here as criminals, because there are asylum seekers who are different. But there are the, 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 the South African public is faced with people who are not documented because we've got, as you said, corruption in a system. And then there's a blurring of lines. So what I'm saying is we need to have that conversation around how responsible yes. the government is around you know, policing around corruption and so on, so that we are dealing with a person who is a legitimate asylum seeker and yes, not yes. an opportunist who's a criminal who's here for other reasons. If we could get those systems right, then I think we would have a really open conversation around our role and and how yes. we accept yes. asylum seekers. Well, look, I, I think there's a huge problem with disaggregated data. Mm. So just on your point of who's coming here has criminals. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence, there's no data to show that the Nigerians are the largest proportion of people who are committing crime in our country. Mm-hmm. Because in my opinion, the most important thing about our constitution and our democracy is respect for law and order. That is, you can't compromise on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that you made a very fleeting comment, but there needs to be lots more work done Mm -hmm. on the state of policing in our country. Mm. I think Mm. there's huge question marks over the way in which the police carry out their responsibility Mm. of of law and order, Mm. of working in a civilian context. Mm. And and I, you know, just as a quick aside, during the the initial stage five of the lockdown, We found through, we we, uh, worked with other organizations to set up a hotline. Mm -hmm. And in the first week or two weeks of that lockdown, Mm -hmm. you know, a very high percentage, something like 70% of the calls were about police brutality. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't against foreign nationals. It was in informal, uh, 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 um, informal, um, what do you call them? In in townships and informal settlements. Yeah. Um, so where poor people live. Mm. And and so there's a big question mark for me about the entire policing in our country. And, and you know, I, I, I think it's it's that's one point. Mm. But I think that for me, the issue of disaggregated data of movement, mm. we don't understand it. And, and ACMS has done incredible research that says categorically that the bigger challenge in South Africa mm. is internal movement of people across provinces and not international movement. Because we don't know in Kauteng, and this is not, I'm not now, uh, you know, saying that we must, we must be kicking out the, the people coming from neighboring provinces, because yes. that's a big danger. Yep. That it, it's, it's almost as though society is correcting itself, right, from our part, mm-hmm. where the most impoverished areas, the former Transkai vendor, where you can't actually... Live out a proper existence because of the nature of the land mm. for various various reasons, and people are there's a process of urbanization taking place. Mm. But are we are we quantifying that? Are we getting the stats to say okay, in Kauteng we have 50 percent of our population are actually from our neighboring provinces. So the, that means that the the figures are going up. So if we're talking about our public health facilities. Mm. We're not catering for only, um, um, I don't know the exact figures, so we're not only catering for 2 million people, we're catering for 4 million people mm. because 
we have this added movement. And yes. people are not staying in housing. If you look at deep sludge, you look at places, you know, Alex, other places, people move back to their homes and they should have that right to do that. Sharon, let's just take a quick break. I'm going to go to the headlines and I'll be back with more and a lot of other people who want to add to this conversation. Sharon is a human rights lawyer and we are talking about a report that was put together by really a a group of very interesting uh, people, uh, concerned um, groups, lawyers for human rights. uh, It was also put together by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and Scalabrini uh, Center in Cape Town, Corruption Watch as well, where there are raising flags around the kind of corruption that we're seeing when refugees ask for uh, asylum in this country, that it is quite alarming and and this is something that we're discussing. So I'll take your comments and calls after Uti Lesaku uh, with the headlines at 1.30. You're listening to Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. Uh, South Africa is capable of uh accommodating asylum seeker the only problem is the government that opened the border for the illegal foreigners to come through so the government should uh, take out those illegal foreigners and then asylum seeker will be, will be uh, accommodated i think it's robert kellen jimstein afternoon pimelo you know, this issue of xenophobia is, is now giving us problems as South Africans. And I have only one solution. You see, the best thing that we must do in order to, to satisfy everyone, maybe this noise will stop, is that we as South Africans, because we don't have any rights anymore, let's, let's just give the country to foreign nationals because they want to run this country. It's no longer ours as South Africans, the people who belong to it. Because what we are asking is not to say they don't know what we are asking. They know exactly because in their country, there's no uh, foreign national who's been uh, allowed to trade nor to operate any of their vehicles. For instance, in Zimbabwe, you cannot trade in Zimbabwe. You cannot even drive a a truck that has got registrations for Zimbabwe uh, as a South African. But here in South Africa, they do as they please. That is why today there is this lot of uh, commissions and noises and all this kind of uh, analysis which are coming to our country. Uh, they are, you know, we've been called names because we've been so lenient to, to, to all these nationals. So the only, only solution is to give up our country and let them do as they please, because that's what they want. This is Pumelo Chico here. My question is, if someone has five years here and then you reject him or more than five years, he's married or maybe he's got a girlfriend that is South African, they got the kids and the kids, they are depending on their husband. Now you expect that person to go just because he's a foreigner. So who's going to support the kids? Because the 300 is not enough already now. Thank you. All right, I'm in conversation with Sherrod Gambaram, who is a head of the Refugee and Migrant Rights Program at Lawyers for Human Rights. They've put together a really interesting uh, report, and it was uh, it's a very new report. It was released now in September, and just raising alarms around the kind of corruption that we are seeing at um, asylum seekers' um, reception points. And uh, there is a massive survey that they did. So, Sharon, let me just welcome you back, and maybe just to give you a chance to respond to the voice notes that came through. Uh, before I respond, can I just uh, correct two things? I am not a lawyer. I am an activist and uh, 
Okay, I, so. I head up the, the Refugee and Migrant Rights Program, which is made up of attorneys and, and paralegals and, All right, well, and, and people training to be lawyers. We'll um, the second point, sorry, is that the UNHCR uh, isn't part of this report. They, uh, it's just Calabrini, Corruption Watch, and, 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 and Lawyers for Human Rights. They're not part um, of this, this report, you were saying? Shana? No, no. Okay. No, no, they're not. Okay. No. Um, so they may have, uh, you know, you made the point that they may have indicated that South Africa is one of the most corrupt. I, I haven't seen that, but, but it's it, not, uh, they, they haven't been part of this, this uh, report. Well, okay, um, on, on, the, on the paperwork I have here, they, they have definitely indicated that South Africa is yes. one of the, uh, the corrupt um, uh, spaces for asylum seekers. So that, that is a, as stated as fact, and apparently it's a report from 2019, end of 2019. Okay, no, thank you for that. Look, I, I, it's very hard to respond to those calls without going back to our history mm-hmm. as, as, as a country, as a continent. And I think that there's a very um, bloody history of how migrant labor was used in our country under colonization and the apartheid state to enrich the minds, you know, of the hostile systems, you know, of how people were kept almost in uh, incarceration and, and, and paid very slave wages, basically. And this was the exploitation of black bodies. And there were people from Mozambique, from the Sutu. So the last point that the, the last speaker, I mean, listener who called, mm. it doesn't only link to the asylum seeker who's been here six years, but to people from Mozambique who came and sold their labor for next to nothing, and then they were not allowed to come with their families, as would any country which is treating people as human beings. And so they, they then had to travel in, in horrendous conditions. And those who did stay and managed to stay are now being treated as, as, as migrants and, and, and needing foreign nationals. And yet these are people who contributed, many of them losing their lives in, in, in the economy of this country, and I think that we, 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 I would ask, you know, of the people that called to go back to the Aliens Act of the apartheid state and to understand how the law enforcement. All right. We, we've got a, a, a bit of a problem and a break there in Sharon's line. Let's just take a quick break while we sort that out. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. All right, let me just uh, welcome a caller who I said I will take their call because I, I've said I'll open the lines on 0891 uh, This particular call is an anonymous call. It's an asylum seeker calling us from the Free State. Good afternoon and thank you so much for joining us, Anonymous. Hello, how are you? Good afternoon to everyone. Thank you so much for calling us, Anonymous. We, are, we, we well thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, I want to ask you, I have uh, two two questions. Mm. Uh, my first question is that I'm um, under asylum seekers is from 2010 mm-hmm. until now. Mm. Because of, I'm here because of the politics. Mm. That's why they managed to take me under protection with my kids. Okay. So now the problem I'm facing now, my kids, they are going to school here. Mm-hmm. But two of them, I have three kids to get bursary to go to college so it's doing college eighteen. This these two now they are doing grade eleven. Next year they are going in grade twelve. So now the problem here in free states, they are not allowing my kids to write grade twelve through an asylum 
prepared. Mm-hmm. If I go back to Durban where we do the asylum seekers, mm-hmm. they say they must write with those asylum seekers. No, now I'm still confused. I don't know what what gonna I do because we don't have a chance to have the passport because we are under refugee. If these papers they say we must we start and work. So I don't know for a help because now I have a serious, serious problem. Mm. Sharon, Second one. Yes. Hello? Hi, we, we're Hi. right here. I think your phone just keeps uh, switching off, but we can hear you. Yes. So that's my, that's my first question. Okay. So the second question now, mm-hmm. me, um, yes, I'm under protection here for my kids because it's a wrong, it's a wrong story. I can't manage to talk yes. about it because of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, self-employment. Mm. I'm doing self-employment to manage to look after my kids and to manage to send them to school. But because of this COVID, COVID I, I lose everything. Now I'm starting even to find something to give my kids because of this COVID. I couldn't manage to do because I'm doing self-employment to manage to, to sell, to do this and this. So now I don't know what to do because last time they sent us a message saying I can manage to apply for those 350 as I'm under refugee. From that time, no response, no what. Even now, I'm just struggling to go away, for, way forward. So I don't know what gonna I do. Mm. Sharon, are you able? I mean, she said she obviously can't give us the the, the long story, but um, the issue around where her children are able to write matric, are they supposed to go to the office or at least in the region where she applied for initially her asylum? No, yes, we applied I, I in Durban. Yes, yes. Sharon? Yeah, so if we go there. Just, well, just one second, um, Anonymous, so that Sharon can maybe assist us. Sharon? I, I think, yes, I think if it's possible for Anonymous to give you her details, mm. then we could get our legal representatives to call her and assist her. If not, the, the Constitution does not um, prescribe that you can only access public schools in certain places. It's mm. that basic ed- education must be accessible to all who live in our country. So we can assist. Uh, we just need to have her details, and sure. I'll, I'll get someone to, to call her and assist on that. And, uh, okay. yeah, and uh, it's, it's certainly not the case. And with her grant as well, we, we can see if we can assist on that. Just for the benefit of those who are listening, Sharon, who are not calling in, with regards to the grants as well, um, they are eligible for grants, correct? Yes, um, the, the Scalabrini Centre, actually, and, and if people can go to their website, they successfully um, challenged the exclusion of, of, of um, uh, asylum mm. seekers because refugees with refugee status mm. do qualify for the grant. But it was the asylum seekers and, and they, were, they were successful and, and an agreement was, was reached yes. with um, social services that, that asylum seekers should also qualify. So yes, the asylum seekers you know, should be able to and, and some of the problems could be that uh, because of COVID, the refugee reception offices were closed. Mm-hmm. The people couldn't keep their asylum papers reflecting mm-hmm. a current date. Mm-hmm. And it appears as though they're expired, but they're not, because the minister has issued very clear uh, um, uh, statements and, 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 and um, 
gosh, the name just uh, words and, my mind now. And just, just uh, that that those papers are valid. You know, they've been extended, extended valid day. until the end of October. In, yes. In fact, I remember it being it's an automatic extension. And also, just to be clear, um, this particular ruling came in in the middle of this lockdown period. And so, from my understanding, uh, payment can be backdated from from even before when this ruling came through. Um, I'm not sure of that, but I think certainly from the date of the ruling, yes. Okay. All right. Uh, let's take uh, another call from KD, who's calling us from the Northern Cape. KD, good afternoon. Good afternoon, ma'am, and listeners and their guests. Mm, good afternoon, well, KD. Yes, thank you. I, I have spoken to some few... Uh, uh, I have spoken to one gentleman who is not actually a refugee, per se, but he, 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 he was awaiting his papers and he told him that he is a professional a, a, a person here in South Africa, but he told me that there was a lot of delays, and he even told me that uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, difficulty when especially you are a black foreigner. Mm-hmm. I also spoke to another gentleman who, with his wife, his wife is from one of the countries outside, but they, they, they wanted uh, 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 documents. He delayed because he is black, but his wife, who is another race, he received the document. So mm. Corruption is one of the major causes of this bottleneck in the system. Mm. And in this corruption, that is when you have got all of these uh, uh, problems that you may say it is crime or it is the xenophobic uh, outbreaks. Now, you, you posed the question when you said South Africa does it have a capacity to, 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 to house foreigners. Well, according, according to what has already been said, South Africa has that. But now South Africa is making mess because if you have people who are being delayed for 15 years, mm. what do you expect them to do? Because do you expect them to keep on going there and going there? And if they don't have money to bribe, will they not disappear within a, 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 the, the South system. African sphere? And also, so the question now is, should South Africa forget about its obligations to the UN? Should South Africa uh, change its constitution? Because one of the reasons why you have got a lot of refugees coming to South Africa from troubled nations in Africa is not only because South Africa is an easy place for crime. It's also because of the constitution. Those people, they see the constitution. So they are fond of changing their constitution is sweet and sweet and sweet. But now when it is being put into the test, they are crying foul. Katie, thank you so much for for your call there. Sharon, let's just help us with the data. And I think part of the problem with with data, and you you spoke to this a bit earlier, is the fact that um, not enough uh, information is is being um, disseminated in the right manner. Um, And and information around who who commits crimes and which kind of uh, foreigners are responsible for what crime. The data coming through from your study, is it able to tell us um, and clarify the perception that the asylum seekers that are from African countries are having a harder time than asylum seekers from European countries, for instance? Are they processed differently and quicker? No. Um, these, uh, I mean, uh, this survey is a random selection of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, people accessing ROs. We have a very tiny percentage of people coming from um, Asia, mm-hmm. from India, Bangladesh, um, seeking refuge in our country. But by far, the majority of people seeking refuge are from the African continent. Mm-hmm. And specifically, and, and the, uh, the, the report does give you indications of percentages. 
But one thing I do want to say is the report has uh, looked at research mm-hmm. and shows through actually uh, statistics that are given to the uh, portfolio committee um, through that process. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that the number of people seeking refuge, asylum seekers coming into our country, has reduced. And is that, that curve is going downwards mm-hmm. over the last 10-year period. So the, 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 the callers are need to, you know, we as South Africans, we have to ensure that when we're speaking, we speak based on facts and on research. Um, so and I, I just think that, I, you know, I, we, we, there is no evidence that our country is being flooded by foreign nationals. Um, these are scapegoating of foreign nationals, of migrants, in the way that Donald Trump scapegoats migrants in America and in the way that Europe is scapegoating migrants through Islamophobia and through very, very reactionary statements that are unfounded. And um, if, we, if people go to Africa Check, it's an excellent organization and they have a website which... Hello, am I, am I still being heard? You are right here. Yes. We can hear you loud and clear. I guess, yeah. Sharon, what I was asking is for you to just assist the caller who was talking about um, the discrimination. And, uh, and we've yes. heard this before, no. that Africans are more discriminated against um, than uh, people coming from countries outside of the continent. Well, the only discrimination is if you are the Guptas and you have money to bribe, then you get permanent residence in six years um, uh, after having been granted immediate. Uh, passports on arrival into the country. So I think that, uh, or, or not having visas. So I think uh, there again, it's the corruption that has uh, discriminates. If you have the money, then you will get access. And that's not how we should be running our asylum system. Um, all services for seeking people seeking asylum is supposed to be free. Um, so, so yes, if that answers your question, uh, there, there isn't a, a, a any discrimination that we picked up with respect to whether you're from the African continent or whether you're from uh, another part of the world. Okay. Anonymous um, is calling us from Pretoria. This is somebody else um, who themselves is an asylum seeker. Um, Anonymous, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Anonymous. Your story uh, about coming into South Africa, how long have you been an asylum seeker for? Um, I've been in South Africa since 2008, mm-hmm. 12 years, 12 years. Anonymous? Yes, I've been okay. 12 years. Yes. I've been in for 12 years. Mm-hmm. For 12 years? Yes. And and what has your experience been, Anonymous? Um, we left our country in order to avoid arrest. Uh, political arrest hmm. and fear of our life. After we came here, my experience uh, from the day that I arrived, it was difficult for me to get uh, the asylum permit. Um, every time I went to home affairs, uh, there are a lot of people, more than 1,000 people will find in a line in a queue. Um, it was also difficult to get uh, through the system because from the gate, it starts from the gate, from the entrance. The security, uh, the security person has been asked to give them uh, some money to let you inside. Mm. Uh, 
you get inside the officials who work inside the home office. Uh, they will ask you again to give them some money in order to give you an extension or to give you the asylum permit. So it starts from the gate, from the entrance. So in order to get all of this, it takes like uh, two months for me to get my asylum mm-hmm. permit. I used to uh, travel to Johannesburg every day mm-hmm. to get my permit. Mm-hmm. So after two months, I did manage to get my permit. Mm-hmm. Then to renew again, to renew or, or, or to get an extension again every three months or six months, or every, you can get even every month, like one month. Mm-hmm. So it was so, so difficult. Up to now, like up to this day, it is very, very difficult. And and the current the current permit you have now is it is it uh, you, do you have to renew it every month still? Um, yes yes yes. Uh, the last time that they gave me is for three months. It expired right now. Yes. Um, I couldn't be able to access uh, my bank. Mm. Not only me, most assignments they are not allowed to access the bank because. During this pandemic, you know, everything is closed. Yes. The home office were not operating as well. Yes. So it is very difficult to get access to education, health care, and banking. Mm. Anonymous, the line is quite bad. We're going to try and see if we can sort it out. But let me ask Sharon. Um, Sharon, you spoke earlier about the fact that, you know, some offices were closed and obviously that affected an extension on people's asylum uh, paperwork. What should people be doing who are sitting with those with the paperwork that is not reflecting um, because there was a shutdown, but is supposed to be automatic because he's saying, you know, banking services and things like that, education have just kind of, you know, uh, been frozen because they don't have the paperwork being reflecting of the fact that the extension was automatic. Um, we, we can assist. We have assisted asylum seekers whose bank accounts were frozen or were not being allowed to access because the papers were not um, duly stamped. Mm. And the, the gazetted information from the Department of Home Affairs clearly indicates that, as you pointed out earlier on, all there's been a, a, a class extension mm. until the RROs open and, and then people will have the ability to uh, renew their papers. And that same applies to schools that, you know, it's unfortunate that there should have been uh, a mass information of all these institutions mm. to be to inform them that here is the, the declaration. Mm. And um, please ensure that you recognize papers of people that have, if they are expired during this period, just simple communication. And, and that would facilitate and, and reduce the, the hardship that many, many people experience because of offices that are not updated. Let's just take some voice notes coming through. Um, and while we do that, I think we've got Anonymous back on the line. Anonymous, are you back? On the line? Yes, it sounds much, much better, Anonymous. Um, okay. Sharon was saying that you, you, you can phone her offices. We'll try and get you in touch with them to try and sort out your banking and so on. But a- apart from that, um, Anonymous, what other issues are you facing as an asylum seeker that are of a concern? Uh, perfect. Um, there's a lot of uh, discrimination. What I see from my side is that there's a lot of discrimination regarding um, education to find uh, free education or to be employed. 
uh, the more of like uh, discrimination that you can see in every day of your life. Mm. Uh, it is very difficult for asylum seekers to get access to education, uh, health care, banking system, and who are also discriminated uh, from the COVID, the current COVID grant. Um, they say we can only be able to give to those refugees who have a status, refugee status. Mm. So it was so hard for us to survive like right now yes. because we couldn't be able to get the right access to all those services. Uh, this is uh, what I say. We're going to put you back and, and we'll give you um, Sharon's office's details or, um, so that you can access some of the services that you said you're unable to access. It, it's a common thread, is it not, Sharon, where a lot of people are just feeling like they, they just don't have access to the facilities and services that they expected to, 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 to at least get um, assistance from. And I think that for me, it should be a reflection for us to to consider that no one chooses to be undocumented. It is not possible to survive in this country. There could be syndicate crime, and that I I I think that our police have to investigate. The NPA has to uh, convict people that are uh, uh, committing crime in our country. Criminal offences must be uh, uh, investigated, and, and people brought to book. But, but as you can hear from the callers who did speak, that it's it's the the, the you know for me it's the core of respect for human dignity. Um, having a document that's what an ID has given us, um, and when you don't have it, then you 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 have absolutely you're not treated as a human being. And and and, and I think that we've heard. I don't have to repeat the kinds of uh, of difficulties that people have. Mm. in navigating the system and, and, and so, so no one would choose to be undocumented. Let me just take one last voice note, Sharon, that's just come through for you. Good afternoon. <clears throat> uh, I would like to weigh in on this uh, issue of uh, uh, South Africans being xen- xenophobic in their own country. It should be noted that we never drove anyone out of his country to come to us. But now we are being labeled xenophobic. The laws for human rights suggest that they they implement human rights in the countries of origin, so that so as to prevent people from being uh, uh, asylum seekers in, in in other countries by implementing, making sure that those countries are implementing human rights. Then we'll all be in peace. Thank you. Bye bye. Sharon, there are many, many more. I'm not going to be able to take them because of time. Um, I suppose what I'm going to ask you to, is to to wrap it up, sum it up, and and obviously the same. And that 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 particular last voice note is is similar to many, many others that I'm not going to play. Oh. And that unfortunately um, is something that we need to address. What would you say to that? Look, I mean, it's hard to respond. I I want to just make one point that. Um we, uh, you know, when during our dark days of apartheid, mm. uh, the people on the continent didn't say, go and sort out your country. Uh, people from Cameroon, I recently learned with much shame that school children were asked to, uh, as we do school fees, they were asked to pay money towards our liberation struggle. The same in Zambia. So the continent and the world united to rid our country of what was now 
is now being labelled a crime against humanity. And I think we, as a country, should be doing the same to bring peace and prosperity on our African continent. It's our continent. We live on this continent. I think that we have signed on to something called the Organization of African Unity, a convention governing specific aspects of refugee problems in Africa. And, and we've got to see ourselves as Africans if we are going to solve this, this problem as a, as a continent of people. And, and, and I, I, I think that, um, unfortunately, this situation exists because, and I think I forgot to actually agree with you, that, that this has to be laid at the doorstep of our government. We have one of the most unequal societies in the world, and that inequality has its roots in apartheid and colonization. And unless we deal with that inequality, then we are going to be blaming foreign nationals. We're going to be blaming, next is going to be blaming people from, from the Eastern Cape because they are coming and taking our jobs. Or we're going to be blaming women because the women are taking our jobs. But the problem is poverty. And we have to deal with poverty and we have to allocate resources to address poverty and not othering and chasing people out. Because I can say categorically here today, if we removed our country of 3 million foreign nationals, and that's the estimate of the number of foreign nationals in our country, then we're not going to solve a 30% unemployment crisis, a 50% unemployment crisis of young people. We're not going to solve those problems in that way. We're still going to exist. So we have to relook at how we hold our government to account for addressing the inequalities rather than blaming the most vulnerable in our country. And, and our constitution it gives us the vision to respect dignity and respect human rights. And that's the culture that we need to be um, being proud of and not, you know, it, it's uh, xenophobia and, um, and racism and sexism has no place in our country. Sharon, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. That's Sharon Ekambaram, who is head of the Refugee and Migrant Rights Program at Lawyers for Human Rights. I see all of your voice notes. I will come back with more of those because I know that you did want to have your say. Just gone two o'clock. Let me go to Utsi Lesaku for the latest in SABC News.